Dear listeners, we tried to keep this episode as PG-13 as possible, but given the subject matter, we will need to recognize the existence of sexual activity in this episode. Listener discretion is advised. So it's the year 1822, and this guy named Robert Stewart, he's an Englishman. He walks into a brothel, and he's planning to meet up with a female prostitute. He gets into the room, and he sees what he thinks is a young woman, but it's actually not. It's a young man dressed in female clothing. And before Robert can do anything, the door to the room is forced open, and these men rushed in and they start accusing him of being about to commit one of the worst crimes a man could possibly commit back then. They accused him of being a sodomite. So, Robert Stewart, he's standing there, and by the way, he's not just any ordinary Englishman, he's Lord Castlereagh, Great Britain's Foreign Secretary and leader of the House of Commons. He's standing there, and he doesn't know what to do. The men threaten to expose him, and right on the spot, he gives them all the money he has, and they let him leave the room. But the blackmail continued, and at 7.30 a.m. on the 12th of August, 1822, Robert took a knife and stabbed himself in the throat, ending his own life. From Triple E Media, I'm Ramat Mohammed, and this is The Backstory. Fast forward almost 200 years later and over to India. Sunita, which is not her real name, had just buried her 26-year-old brother Kumar, also not his real name. Kumar hanged himself on March 23rd of this year. A few days after the burial, Sunita received a message on Facebook. It was from an online gang who demanded more money to ensure that they do not post a video of Kumar online. When Sunita started to dig, she found out that before he died, her brother had borrowed money to pay off the gang that had been blackmailing him. You see, Sunita's brother had met a woman online, on Facebook, and he started chatting with this woman who was able to convince him to undress over a video call. The video was recorded and it turned out that the woman was part of a gang of men that would go on to use this video to blackmail Kumar. And of course, if you're on Nigerian social media, you will know that we have a similar story that happened closer to home. So I'm in my car and my one of my, my road managers sends me a message. He's like, yo, check your, check your phone. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I check it and there's a video. And I'm just like, whoa. I'm like, where did you get this from? Award-winning like, musician Tiwa Savage was the latest high-profile victim of sexual blackmail. And that was a clip from her interview with Angie Martinez on Power FM 105.1. Other cases involving everyday people have been reported in Nigerian news. Last year in Sokoto State, 19-year-old Hafsat, which is not her real name, woke up to an angry message from her fiancé. They were to be married in less than a month, and here he was suddenly calling off the wedding. The night before, 
three young men had released a compromising video on social media that exposed this young lady together with her ex-boyfriend. So very little has changed in 200 years. Today, we call it sextortion or sexual extortion, and we use more advanced technology, but it's the same thing today as it was in 1822. Sexual extortion is a form of blackmail that is still a lucrative business, and unfortunately, people still die because of it. When we started to dig into the history of sexual blackmail, we found that in order for sexual extortion to thrive in a society, you need two things. Number one, you need a society that has a standard of morality, which makes sexual acts taboo or even illegal. Basically, you need a very conservative society that also criminalizes certain sexual acts. And number two, you need a society that has access to anonymous methods of communication. Now, in Europe, especially England, sexual blackmail really began to take off in the early 1700s. Around that time, English society was in the process of refining the model of what a manly Englishman should look and behave like. A manly Englishman of that time had to stand in a complete contrast to the effeminate Frenchman. And a manly Englishman had to maintain a reputation of being attracted only to women. Now, in addition to the social pressure, there were laws that punished same-sex relationships between men in particular. In England, sodomy was a crime that was punishable by death until 1861. So this environment, which was created by the social pressure and the laws, was a blackmailer's dream. Many men, the rich, the middle class, the poor, they became victims of blackmail. Now, some men actually took their blackmailers to court and they won because the courts actually didn't care whether the accusation was true or not. They punished the blackmailer. But sexual blackmail was still a lucrative business and it was so rampant that it got to a point in 1770 when the court passed a law that made false accusation of sodomy a crime punishable by death. Now, at that time, the laws did not recognize sexual blackmail between a man and a woman. So, in the 1740s, a woman named Constantia Phillips, she wrote a scandalous autobiography. And in this book, she named the names of all her ex-lovers, which included very wealthy and prominent men. She then went on to blackmail each of them, saying she will publish their name if they do not pay up. And some paid and some did not. But the laws could not do anything to Constantia or the other women that followed in her footsteps. But still, women back then didn't have the same opportunity to engage in behaviors worthy of blackmail. For one, they were under more family surveillance and back then they didn't really have their own money so they would have been literally poor targets for blackmail. It wasn't until 1890 that the laws in England fully recognized blackmail between a man and a woman. And it wasn't until the 1900s that we saw the rise of the female blackmailer. During the two world wars, that's between the 1920s into the 1940s, women's status in American society was quickly changing. The old world of having separate cultures for men and separate cultures for women, that was disappearing. As women mingled more with men in the public spaces and in the workplace, 
the media began to carry sensational stories of women blackmailing men. In March 1872, the New York Times ran an article in support of Reverend Dr. Carter, who had stood up to a woman who was attempting to blackmail him. According to the article, female blackmailers at the time targeted clergy, which were easy prey, as well as doctors and merchants. All a woman had to do was request a private meeting with the intended victim, during which she could claim to have been assaulted and then demand hush money. So then, naturally, men who were accused of actually raping and assaulting a woman would then turn around and claim they were being falsely blackmailed by the woman. Now, the sexual revolution that happened in the U.S. in the 1960s to the 1980s removed shame from sexuality, and with that, blackmail cases started to go down until the internet happened. The internet became commercially available to the masses around the mid to late 1990s. The idea was to connect people from around the world by breaking down barriers to communication. And the internet has done exactly that. And it has done one more thing. It has provided nearly complete anonymity to those communications. The stories we found of sexual extortion in Nigeria go hand in hand with the internet and the digital revolution. We're not saying that we didn't have sexual blackmail before the internet. Remember, a society needs two things in order to enable sexual extortion. Number one, a very conservative outlook on sexuality and even laws prohibiting certain acts. And number two, access to anonymous means of communication. Nigeria was and still is an ultra-conservative society when it comes to public displays of sexuality. In some parts of the country, you will see wedding pictures with a bride and a groom on their wedding day standing feet apart. But in the past in Nigeria, there was no such thing as maintaining one's anonymity. In Nigeria, someone always knows what you're doing at any given time. So while we do believe sexual blackmail happened in the past. It was something that put both the blackmailer and the one being blackmailed at risk, meaning that if an extortion is exposed, both parties would have been exposed. And in Nigeria, extortion is a criminal offense that can carry up to three years in prison. But when the internet and digital technology came along, it provided a key ingredient that allows sexual extortion to thrive, anonymity. Digital technology and the internet gives the extortionist anonymity. And this means two things. First, even if the victim goes to the police, any hope of finding the extortionist would depend on the technical capabilities of the police. The police need to have the right technologies to be able to track and trace digital signals. Second, as long as the identity of the blackmailer is anonymous, the public's attention will remain on the victim. So if we take you back to the basic equation, conservative morality and anonymity would feed into the growing trend of sexual extortion that we are seeing in Nigeria. That means if we want to reduce the cases of sexual extortion in our country, we can do one of two things. Relax our conservative morality around what we consider to be respectable sexuality, or we can agree to stop being anonymous on the internet. Every single time this issue of a compromising video or photos comes up, there are usually three camps of people. There's the camp that spends their time blaming the victim, 
And then there's a camp that spends their time preaching about how we should not throw stones at the victim. This is the camp that recognizes the vulnerability of the moment and attempts to empathize with the victim. And then there's a third camp, the camp that is screaming at the top of our lungs, find and expose the blackmailer. That's my camp. I do empathize with the victims when this happens, but empathy does not stop criminals. Now, the Nigerian courts, they've actually been really impressive when it comes to dealing with sexual blackmailers. In the cases that we've seen in the papers, the courts are handing down jail sentences in addition to giving financial retribution to the victims. But we, the people, the society, we need to start to shift the psychological burden that we place on victims every time this happens and put it on the blackmailers. Now, those of us who spend time victim shaming and blaming, it's because we believe that we are somehow morally superior, that such a thing could never happen to us. For those of you who believe that, I want you to spend some time doing some research on deep fakes. These are also known as synthetic media. And then decide if you still want to spend your time blaming the victim. The Backstory is brought to you by Triple E Media Productions. Production copyright 2021 Triple E Media Productions. If you enjoyed this episode of The Backstory and want to hear more, subscribe to our 234 Audio YouTube channel. Episodes of this podcast and our other podcasts can also be found on our website, 234audio.com, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Backstory was produced by Ramat Mohammed, Antonieta Kalunta, John Iwobi, and Sam Tabakaji. Executive Producer Ramat Mohammed. Special thanks to Mala Iwa Bagduo Ikaleku. If you are interested in sponsoring this program, reach out to us at 0818 230 1234 or email us at info at 234audio.com. I'm Ramat Mohammed. See you next week.